Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities, coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre Studios on Boon Country. I am your host, Jack Ranjanan, joined this episode by Cal Hawke. Uh, the poor mental health outcomes of LGBTIQ plus Victorians uh, comes at an economic and financial cost estimated to be as high as $3 billion in research released recently. Commissioned by Thorn Harbour Health, the report findings from Deloitte show the rate of lifetime mental health for LGBTIQ plus Victorians is 73%, significantly higher than the 46% among the general population. To discuss the report and some of its findings, we're joined uh, in studio by, uh, I believe, CEO of Switchboard Victoria, Joe Ball, and uh CEO of Thorn Harbour Health, uh, Simon Ruth, on the phone. Uh, thank you both for your time uh, on the show today. Simon, I guess to start with, how did this report come about? Um, the report first came about uh, Deloitte were doing some work with Mental Health Victoria, who were the peak body for mental health services in Victoria, and they became aware of um, two reports that came out of La Trobe University, Private Lives 3 and Writing Themselves in 4, which many listeners will be aware of. They were two reports into the lives of queer people in Australia. Um, and, and it was also at the time of the Mental Health Royal Commission being developed and um, the Deloitte contacted us and said, look, we, we think there's work to be done here in the space of LGBTI mental health. We're not sure that it's been done before. Um, would you be interested in working on this together? So... Um, then we had a couple of meetings. We, we figured out what we could uh, research and, and it uh, sort of moved on from there. So the report focuses on Victorians in the year 2019 and on high prevalence disorders. And that year um, is particularly relevant because a couple of um, the state government released a couple of reports that looked at the uh, population health of LGBTI people. Um, so it, it's really just a look at the data systems, at what, what data is available, um, and, and look, taking a few ways of economically how you look at the data. Um, but the state of Victoria was picked and that year was picked because there was available data for that year. With that in mind, now, Simon, you've touched on a couple of the existing reports that have come out. You know, Joe, this isn't the first report about adverse mental health outcomes for our LGBTIQ um, Victorians and populations more broadly. What do you think is compelling about this report or perhaps makes it stand out from what we already know? Yeah, you're right, Cal. We have seen an increase in research around LGBTIQA plus mental health and well-being, and of course that's really welcome. And it's and, and largely from great organisations like Rainbow Health Victoria that did the two pieces of research that Simon mentioned, Private Lives and Writing Themselves In. But this particular piece of research is unique because it demonstrates the financial cost of poor mental health outcomes in our community most notably the cost of inaction and the cost of stigma and discrimination which drives poor mental health and suicide rates. Um, and this is needed uh, for adequate 
for advocacy, for adequate resourcing for mental health prevention and initiatives in our community. We have not seen a report like this. I can't st stress that enough. And I think that it is about the cost um, of our poor mental health. And, you know, I absolutely welcome it. And I was part of, you know, the consultancy group um, as a representative of Switchboard Victoria. And, and this is for both of you, I suppose. But, you know, I guess when we're trying to understand why LGBTIQ have poor mental health outcomes, what are some of those factors? I guess, Joe, to you first, what are those contributing factors? It's important to understand that when people in our community are accepted and supported, that we actually have very similar mental health outcomes to the general population. So what does that mean? It means that this tells us that our poor, that poor mental health and suicide rates are actually preventable, which is really glaring. And it's, and it's importantly that it's not about who we are, but actually how we are treated. And I think there can be this conflation about when people hear the poor mental health and it's connected to our identities, but it's not. It's about stigma, discrimination, oppression, intergenerational trauma, like how we've been treated over generations, um, a discrimination in the law. So it's actually, again, I say, it's not about who we are, but how we are treated. Simon, would you want to add anything to that? Uh, uh, everything Joe said is spot on. Um, you know, it's there. There is also over the lifetime of a queer person or a, an LGBTI person. You know, there is a, a build-up of stress um, that we go through. The the constant and ongoing fear of discrimination, um, of being bullied. Um, every LGBTI person know, has at some point had a negative experience coming out and talking about who they are, and you know the. That's the reason that we also put off seeking healthcare early, um, you know, because we're concerned about how we're going to be treated in healthcare settings. Because a lot of people have had negative experiences in healthcare settings. I think, you know, some people say, "When did you come out?" And I think what a lot of cis straight people don't realise is you come out every day. There's always there's someone, whether it's a taxi driver, whether it's someone you've just spoken to on the telephone, whether it's a health professional that you've never met before, you are constantly coming out. And coming out is stressful in itself because you never know what the reaction is going to be. Um, and that does build up over time and that, and that creates a lot of pressure. And, and that's the reason we delay care. And delaying care also leads um, to poor mental health. Simon, what are some of the other kind of key findings from the report, report from Deloitte? Sorry there. Um, but one of the things that the report sought to do, uh, you know, one of one of our ongoing problems is that we don't know how many LGBTI people are in Victoria. Um, and the report pulled together a bunch of available data and came with an upper and a lower bound. Um, it was it was based on uh, a couple of different self-reporting reports and extrapolating those out. Um, so when it looks at the lower bound, it's estimating that there's 371,000 LGBTI people in Victoria. The upper bound was 518,000 LGBTI people in Victoria. Um, this is probably the first time we've ever sort of seen figures like that that give us some firm idea of what the population may be. Uh, the Victorian government is redoing the population health survey, so these figures may change dramatically. They, I, I imagine they're probably both going to increase. Um, and, and it did look at high prevalence disorders. So when we talk about these figures of three billion that Joe mentioned, we're only talking about anxiety, depression, and the costs of suicide and suicide bereavement and attempts. We're not talking about psychosis. We're not talking about major depression. Uh, we're not talking about drug and alcohol disorders. So there's a whole bunch of other mental health areas as well that aren't captured in this report. This is solely high prevalence types of disorders. Um, it was... Uh, 
the upper and lower bounds for economic and financial costs were between 2.2 and $3 billion. And the intangible costs, which is more about the impact on our well-being um, and our lives, was a much bigger figure, and that was $16.8 billion to $23.4 billion. Um, to understand the difference between all those numbers, you need to read through the report, and it explains it better. Uh, but we are talking very big dollar figures, um, and, and as Jay said, these are largely preventable. That, as you're talking about that, you're talking about a lower bound and upper bound. You're also talking about the limitations of the mental health conditions that you are, you know, that, that that were within scope of the research. So I guess what I'm kind of hearing from that is that these numbers are, I don't know if the word is conservative, but they're kind of pretty strictly bound. I mean, these aren't sort of, we haven't pulled these out of thin air. These are pretty rigorously, they've gone through, I guess, a, a bit of a process to come to these terms. Yeah, they, they, they've gone through a, a big process. Um, the report probably took the best part of a year to write. Um, there were, I think, six staff working on it. Uh, and as Deloitte said, it always pays to be conservative because you don't want to accidentally blow yourself out of the water. So these are all conservative figures. Um, the, the numbers are probably higher, um, but, but they said it doesn't pay to, to writing figures which you might later find uh, are overblown. So yes, you're right, they're conservative figures. Joe, earlier this week, we had the launch of this report virtually. Um, You know, when we are talking about this cost and we're putting dollar figures against people, you know, we did see some community concern that this report frames LGBTIQ people in a negative light, or I think it was a a deficit model, I think someone might have said. Um, But you, you mentioned during that event, you know, that this is the conversation that unfortunately, we're kind of forced to have. Can you explain, I guess, that concern a little bit, but also what that means by the conversation we're forced to have? Yeah, sure. Look, our new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said this week that not all that counts can be counted. And I think that reflects the sentiment of some people in the community and their reaction to this report. And I I agree, um, largely. Our response to mental health should not be dictated by cost alone. Um, It shouldn't just be about good economic management to invest in the lives and well-being of LGBTIQA plus people. I mean, as a society, we should care about people leading healthy and productive lives. I still think that this report is helpful, though, um, because it needs to highlight the need and ensure adequate investment from federal and state governments. There is a benefit to health economics, and we saw that in the HIV crisis. It was actually one of the predominant ways that funding for PrEP and, and other HIV responses actually came about, was making this argument about what cost it is and therefore what are the benefits of preventing HIV, what it costs when, when someone lives with HIV um, and the uh, effects of HIV, um, the, um, the, the consequences um, and on, on community. So I think that we've learned a bit about that from the HIV crisis and the, and the benefit of health economics, although it can feel really painful, I guess, for people when they're like, well, is this what we're reduced to, financial things? And I think what we need to do is have a swag of responses um, when we're advocates. And I absolutely believe that we need to bring the lived experience voices. And that certainly happened in HIV. That was really important. You need to put actual people who are suffering, and in this case, mental health and people who've been bereaved by suicide or live with thoughts of suicide. You need to put those people in front of politicians and say, these are real people, these are real lives. But there are... There are accountants and there are treasurers and there are budgets to to balance. And so there's a need for that argument as well. To be clear, I do not believe that the lives of LGBTIQA plus people should ever be framed as a burden or a cost. Um, And as people with poor mental health and who live with thoughts of suicide, or even those who have attempted suicide, these acts don't make us a burden. 
I want to be clear about that. We are whole people who contribute every day to the fabric of this society and we can never measure a person by the health care that they need. Simon, Joe, first of all, amazing point. And Simon, I wanted to ask you this as well. You know, while we'd like to think decision makers in government would invest in LGBTIQ mental health because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, but does this, you know, does I guess this report, does this provide us with a compelling economic case with an opportunity to change the minds of other decision makers or people that haven't necessarily supported or been on board with us previously? Um, yeah, it certainly does. It, uh, you know, we, we have been through the Mental Health Royal Commission in Victoria. Victoria is investing record amounts of money into mental health uh, ever. Um, and this report actually helps us understand that uh, if you target LGBTI people, um, that there can be a cost benefit in that, you know, there can be cost benefit over time to providing targeted services into our community. It's one thing to speak to health bureaucrats who often get what we're talking about, treasury bureaucrats, the people who control the purse strings and, and in the end uh, make the decisions about what will and won't get funded. Um, they are people who look at dollar figures and they want to know that it's definitely going to improve the lives of LGBTI people or, or any people, no matter what the issue is, before they will invest in it. So. Um, you know, we're, we're very good at talking to people who probably already get us. Um, this is this is the first attempt at, at talking to the, the people who control the purse strings in language that they understand. Here on Well, 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 we're speaking about the cost of adverse LGBTIQ plus mental health a report commissioned by Thorn Harbour Health uh, with report findings from Deloitte with uh, Joe Ball from Switchboard and Simon Ruth from Thorn Harbour Health. Stick around. We've got more coming up in just a moment. From HIV to COVID-19, STIs and everything in between, you're listening to Well, Well, Well on Joy 94.9. That's where you are, here uh, in the Victorian Pride Centre studio. My name's Jack, here with Cal, and uh, in the studio we've got Joe Ball, CEO of Switchboard, and on the phone, Simon Ruth, uh, CEO of Thorn Harbour Health, speaking about the cost of adverse LGBTIQ plus mental health, uh, a report commissioned by uh, Thorn Harbour Health uh, with findings from Deloitte. Um, I mean, where, where were we at before before we went to the break? Because there's, there's, <laughs> there's just so much to navigate. There's, there's been a lot and we have a lot to unpack. Um, and we've talked about the cost, the economic cost there. But I guess I'm starting to think about where do we go to next? You know, Joe, the report highlights some of the poor experiences LGBTIQ Victorians have faced when engaging with mainstream mental health services. Switchboard being on the phones, have we, you know, got kind of collected some of that anecdotal evidence? Have we heard uh, feedback from the community around what it's like to engage with mainstream services yep we have <laughs> and we've heard it we've heard it every day yep. and that's that's you know for those who don't know switchboard runs two seven day a week helplines so one is the victorian partner of q life the national helpline and we run the victorian service and the other is rainbow door which is a victorian wide service that is funded both through family violence and the mental health royal commission and you know, and then we run an older people's service where we visit people in aged care. So we hear those stories too. Um, and we run a, a targeted suicide prevention program. I mean, every day we speak to people that face the barriers of the system across the system, whether it is aged care, whether it is um, the mental health system, whether it's bed-based care, um, whether it's your GP. So we know that there's a lot of work to still be done. I think there's also a massive resourcing issue. Uh, I think that... Um, we have 
in our community, um, LGBTIQA plus people, we hear on our, through our services that people are far more likely to go to their peers first. And that can include like their housemates, their sporting teams, like community people they know within community and start having those conversations about their mental health um, far before they even speak to a GP. And I think that um, that is okay but it creates a lot of burden in our community. And actually we need to have a health system where people feel like they trust it and that they can actually go and access it directly early um, and have those conversations. I mean, peers can be great to help navigate you. Your friends can help navigate you to the, to different systems. But at the end of the day, we need to be also accessing the services as the same rate as um, other people and not feeling that having a sense that they're going to be bad and then also going and having bad experiences. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, this is very much recognised in the Mental Health Royal Commission is these barriers. There are those evidence about LGBTIQA plus people. There are within the studies and there is within this report. Simon, Thorn Harbour Health has been providing a number of counselling and mental health services now for some time to LGBTIQ people. Are, is Thorn Harbour Health or are these you know, kind of community controlled services able to keep up with demand? Um, yeah, we're, we've had a small counselling program for probably 20 years and more recently we've got family violence funding and alcohol and drug funding. Uh, and we've also had some COVID dollars come from the Victorian government as well, which have assisted. Um, but no, we can't keep up with demand. Um, it seems the more money that gets put in and, and you know, particularly the more we market, the more demand there is. Um, we have a, a long uh, waiting list of people wanting to seek counselling from us. Um, it's Joe's service who refers a lot of them to us. Um, where possible, we will assist people on the waiting list to seek other LGBTI-friendly counselling services from outside our organisation and with other organisations. But there's a lot of people who specifically want to come to us um, because they know that they will be coming into an LGBTI organisation that they don't need to, they won't, won't feel unsafe when they come through here. Um, but we'll have a basic understanding of their life and, and what they've been going through. Um, so, so there is a, a preference from LGBTI people to attend LGBTI-run services. And I think picking up that point that Joe mentioned too, if people are talking to their peers and a peer has been a client, I guess, of a service, chances are, you know, like you said, it sort of self-perpetuates more referrals because word of mouth gets out. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think during COVID as well, because we moved a, a lot of services online, um, what we can now provide, you don't have to come all the way into Abbotsford or St Kilda to receive a service from us. We can also provide an, an online service to you, no matter where you are in the state. Um, so that has created more interest, particularly from people in rural and regional and outer urban settings who might otherwise struggle to come into us in the inner city. Well, it, I mean, that sounds like a, a great, I guess, a silver lining to COVID in, in a way, but yet creates a bit of a problem because, like you said, the demand is it has just ballooned. I guess to either of you, but maybe in the first instance to Joe, um, capacity building. We hear a lot about that building capacity within mainstream services. So making mainstream services, um, you know, uh, able to uh, properly, you know, provide services to LGBTIQ people and in a sensitive and culturally, you know, um, literal, liter with, a, with a sense of cultural literacy around our communities. You know, is that, does that work? What we do know about evidence is that people want choice mm. and that our communities are already accessing those services. Of course, many people in our community, I'm just talking about helplines now, but of course, many people in our communities access Beyond Blue, Lifeline, Kids Helpline. And of course, we really welcome that. But what we do see in those instances is 
if those workers on those helplines haven't been capacity built, like sometimes the training we hear sort of happens at a higher level, might happen to the office-based staff, but for the person who's calling, they need that particular worker who's responding at Lifeline, at Kids Helpline, at Beyond Blue to have been trained and to have the capacity to respond in that moment. And actually a lot of the time we see that those calls are diverted to us and to our services, which when you look at the comparison of budget, um, it probably should be going the other way. And I think it speaks to like the limits of capacity building mainstream organizations because they're, they're picking up those phone calls and people are struggling to feel like they're met and understood. Um, and I think because our community is quite diverse and we all the time at Switchboard and I know at Thorn Harbour are thinking about the full diversity and complexity of our community and that's our full-time business which means, and we have that community accountability through our boards and um, through our membership. So, and we're always getting that feedback from our community. So we're always thinking about how can we do better for our community? But these mainstream organizations, they've got to think about a wider cohort and a more generalist response. And I think a lot of people in our community, they, they want a targeted response and fair enough. And I think we share that with other communities. We hear that from migrant communities. We hear that from Aboriginal communities. It's fair enough that people, when they're having their worst days, they want to be met with someone who actually kind of at least understands core parts of who they are. Um, and like, for example, I, you know, a trans woman, when she's ringing up a family violence service and she's having a fight on the phone saying, no, I am a woman and this is my voice, you know, um, and we hear about that as people saying, like, you sound like a man. And at an LGBTI service, as a, you know, a helpline, we deal with that all the time. We don't make a presumption based on someone's voice because that's a big part of the service we've been running for now 31 years. So I think those small things, but imagine that, that barrier that you're having that conversation um, at a moment when you have got fear for your life. And then what we hear is too much that that phone just gets hung up. And that person doesn't call back. And it might, you know, it takes a lot to call a self-service. It takes a lot to make a counselling appointment. So you don't want to trip on that first hurdle. So yes, we must always build capacity for mainstream because we cannot look after our whole community. Um, we, it, it, It's a huge community and we know our community wants choice. Our community wants to access mainstream and we have a right to access mainstream. So we must keep building capacity. But at the same time, we need to invest in community-led, community-controlled organisations so that we can play a role of, of creating choice for our community and also training, <laughs> doing that capacity building um, and playing that accountability to our community. And definitely Thorn Harbour and Switchboard, we pay that accountability, we give that feedback to the mainstream. So they need to happen in parallel. And my final point on this, so I can just have one final point, is... <laughs> that when I'm talking about building them in parallel, we need to recognize that our organizations aren't funded in parallel. Mm -hmm. So it's not, and so there needs to be a lot of catch up funding in order that we are also recognized within that choice, that real choice framework um, for our community. Simon, I know Thorn Harbor has uh, done a significant amount of work in trying to build capacity in mainstream services in health more broadly. You know, uh, what do you think about the role there? Anything to add? Um, yes, you're right. But there, there's a lot of training that we offer, particularly to mainstream healthcare, um, and uh, we have one specific program that looks at training people on how to work with um, trans and gender diverse people to to try and create a more positive experience. Um, 
I think Joe touched on it, you know, we need better mainstream services. We also need a, a comprehensive and adequate LGBTI community-controlled sector. But we also can't expect members of our community to attend services that they may believe are responsible for their trauma. So there's a lot of health and welfare organisations out there and, and particularly a lot of faith-based organisations and there's a lot of LGBTI people who are traumatised by those faiths and having grown up in households where um, that was an impact or having gone to school where they were taught that they were a sinner for their whole childhood and, and to expect that an LGBTI person or, or a victim of any abuse from, from a faith background is going to want to walk in back into that faith um, to receive care, I, I think we need to accept that you know that that's not always appropriate, and that people have the right to not want that, and they need to be provided with an alternative. Simon, I'm also going to throw to you. You know, the term uh, LGBTIQ community control. Can you just explain that what that actually means? I guess for an organisation like Switchboard or, or Thorn Harbour. Yeah, so the, the concept of community control came out of North America in the sort of the 50s, and it was a, a, about um, communities, particularly African-American communities and communities of colour, taking back control of services. Um, and early on, it was looking at healthcare and education and housing and some of those other areas. In Australia, it's probably most widely known as Aboriginal community control and Aboriginal community controlled health. But the definition effectively means that it was established by community, it is by and for community, and it is accountable to community. And we, we would also add in there that it's not for profit. Um, so in our case, we were established by gay men and lesbians back at the start of the HIV epidemic. Um, the vast majority of our staff are LGBTI people. Uh, we only provide services for the LGBTI community and people with HIV. We're not interested in branching out and providing services to the rest of the community. And we're also accountable in, to the community in that we have a membership base, the membership elects the board, and our membership can hold us accountable as well. So, so we always have to have that loop back that if the community is not happy with us, the community can do something about it. One final question for you both, and Joe, I'll throw it to you first. Where do we go from here? You know, I, I think that we need to you know i think we at the moment we have the royal commission um and and the findings of the royal commission and there's a whole kind of rollout process i mean i'm a i'm a member of the lgbti um q government task force and i think there's a role for me there to do to talk about the issues that we've raised today and i think the report is going to add um really important data into that conversation because whatever we do around mental health um, for our communities, it needs to be evidence-based, and we need to, you know, it, it, and um, and uh, and it also needs to come from the lived experience stories of people who are most affected. So I think the next thing is that we need to be looking at the Mental Health Royal Commission and looking at the you know, the things that are in there that point to our community, and sort of fleshing that out and making sure. Uh, both Thorn Harbour and Switchboard, that we're in there having those conversations, ensuring that that the community-led, community-controlled organisations, that money is, you know, that we are being considered in the mix um, and that the findings of the report um, are part of that conversation. So I think there's there's a bit of advocacy, a bit of uh, um, visiting Spring Street for me and Simon in the next few months. Um, and I just, you know, that's part of our role. That That is the heart of being community-controlled organisations is that we need to, when we have the evidence in front of us, we need to take it out there and fight for our community to have better health outcomes. Simon, same question to you. Where do we go Where from here? Where do we go here? from here? Um, yep. Yep. Um, I, I think Joe's just summed it up really nicely. Um, you know, there are 
we also need to grow quickly. Um, we have now repeatedly over the last five years through private lives, through writing themselves in, through the Victorian Population Health Survey, through this report, demonstrated the needs in our community. Um, you know, there is a crisis in LGBTIQ mental health. Uh, Victoria is the state that is best prepared to do something about it. Um, so, so we need to, to move quickly to try and do something about that. Um, but it needs to be recognised that we are small organisations as well. Um, and if you look at the two of us, it's say Transgender Victoria and maybe Curie Pride and Minus 18, we are all relatively small organisations. So we also need help um, from the rest of the mainstream mental health sector to support us to grow as well and to partner with us and to work with us. Well, there you have it. Uh, CEO of Switchboard, Victoria Joe Ball, and CEO of Thorn Harbor Health, Simon Ruth. Thank you both for joining us here on Well, Well, Well. You're listening to Well, Well, Well here on Joy. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being, presented by Joy sponsor, Thorn Harbor Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbor on social media at Thorn Harbor or via the website, thornharbor.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.